I've never been proud of my ability to do housekeeping, but here are two housekeeping issues we need to address. First of all, this podcast, although it's about creativity, also touches on issues of human relationships, the slings and arrows of life, and therefore grief, loss and adversity. So please listen with care. The second thing is there is one extremely mild curse word in the body of this podcast. It's not going to offend anyone, but I just thought I should let you know. Hello, I'm Sophia, and this is my place where art and grief meet. Cue the whizzes and poppers and other suitable party noises because, dear listener, as you tune into Where Art and Grief Meet today, you'll find yourself with me at episode number five. And with five episodes under our belt, I call that a handful and a somewhat excellent post-COVID excuse for a party. So get down and then get up again. Today's conversation is with Liz Gamberg. She is a Seattle-based multidisciplinary creative. She works in clay. She works in collage. Uh, She teaches a, a course which is collage and writing with another artist. And with the graphic quality of her aesthetic undeniable, she designs rugs which are ethically handwoven in Nepal. Liz also has a great love of mathematics and has a master's in education. So her analytical mind has been employed not only teaching students maths, but she's also worked testing software for Microsoft. Liz is a a gentle and considered communicator who laughs loudly. And she's such a welcome addition to the Where Art and Grief Meet community. You'll find that I cough and snuffle my way through this conversation and unfortunately no amount of clipping and button twiddling could actually erase that completely. But I can assure you that this is the last episode where I have that heinous persistent cold. But apologies in the meantime anyway because, yeah, it was ghastly. And I hope the content of our conversation sort of erases the horror of the snuffles. So with the introduction done, there's really nothing left for me but to seamlessly segue from here to the lovely exchange with Liz Gamberg and me and my dogs. I have two dogs. They are currently attacking each other. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you mentioned them in your... um, Trying to make their presence felt. (laughs) Yes, we see you. Yes, Pluto and somebody else. Uh, Her name is Nyx. Nyx, she's the daughter of chaos, but uh, she's actually more frequently (laughs) just called Baby because she will never grow up. (laughs) Baby, be quiet. No barking. Shh. Hush. Good girl. <laughs> She's terrible. She's so pretty. 
but she's so bad. <laughs> Baby, stop it's, it. It's good she's pretty, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, my my boy Pluto, he's very handsome too. Yes. But, but you know, he's more yeah. he's more enigmatic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so great. Yeah. Uh, so, so anyway, tell yeah. me about this project. Uh, my father was a businessman, but he but he played violin, you know, just, uh, you know, just because he liked it. And, and my mother who died just a few months ago, actually. Um, well, I was exposed to that. That's a thing. I, that she was sort of a housewife type <laughs> um, and then had to go back to work because of financial reasons, but never pursued anything um, artistic, but I was exposed to art from a very young age. I was sent off to art classes. I was taken to concert, you know, symphonies and art museums and things like that. So it was more that I was exposed to it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, st- you mentioned just then that you lost your mom just recently. Yes. I'm really sorry to hear about. Is that part of why you were interested in engaging with Where Art and Grief Meets? No. This is going to sound really crazy, but. I love crazy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, okay, good. You're in for it. (laughs) Um, Actually, my mother's death was a real relief. Okay. uh, for, For me, more so than for my brother who lives near her live lives near her which is the other side of the the east coast of the united states okay so i know i'm in seattle right yeah so um she was uh very narcissistic and troubled and didn't have maternal qualities and so but i think what has happened i should i should qualify my initial answer um that because i believe that any loss brings up other griefs absolutely yeah so so um so although it's a relief um it brings up other stuff yeah sure yeah and i really appreciate you know the frankness in being able to say that it's a relief yes yeah i think um what I, I call my mother Ellen. Actually, I call her by her first name, yeah. um, uh, just because she was not maternal. Um, I I think what her death. Uh, one of the things that one of the many things it's brought up is um, the grief for what I never had. Sure. Yeah. So. Did you move away because you didn't want to have proximity to that relationship and you needed physical distance? Unconsciously, yes. Yeah. I originally came to Seattle decades ago, actually, after college and graduate school and editing math books and teaching in Boston um, and getting a master's degree in education. I 
thought, oh, I'll travel across the country for the summer. And so I took a couple months to and visited people. And then I just ended up staying. And that was 1980. So okay. it was, yeah. So it wasn't uh, a conscious, it, it wasn't planned. Uh, my stay was not planned. Yeah. But I do think that what you just mentioned was in the mix. Yeah. Um, and also being comfortable, being a long way away from what's traditionally known as home um, and being being able to find yourself more settled and and choosing that speaks volumes about, you know, about what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, re- it's really funny this week. I <laughs> This is kind of tangential, but I think it's connected. Mm-hmm. So um, Ellen, many years ago, gave me a beautiful – hand-sewn quilt by the Amish people. I don't oh, know yes. if you know. Yeah, that's a log cabin quilt. Mm-hmm. But she didn't want to give it to me until I was settled, right? So I sort of had to fight for it, you know? And I and still, I'm in her eyes, I'm not settled because I didn't get married and have kids and all that stuff. Yeah. So it's been sitting in my in in my place here and it's quite thread, threadbare and I thought I was doing some rearranging I was like oh I still have this quilt I don't I don't want this quilt I don't want it anymore yeah. I don't know what to do with it so on Facebook I posted it and I said is there anybody in the Seattle area who would be interested in this very authentic very threadbare log cabin Amish quilt and this really cool woman here who, if you don't know about her, (laughs) Holly Ballard Martz, she's an artist here and she does a lot of uh, political, her work is incredible, incredible. Anyway, she responded (laughs) to the, to the post and she said, if, if no one else wants it, I would be interested as long as it's okay with you that I'm going to transform it into an art piece. And I was like, that is so perfect transforming it. Cause I didn't want to throw it away. Sure. And she was the first person to respond. She was the only person to respond. And um, I'm so, it's just the perfect, it's the perfect thing. It's the perfect thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm just thrilled. And I, w- when she comes and picks it up, I want to, um, I want to uh, tell her the story about the quilt, and I think she'll appreciate that. I think it's so heavily laden because it just represents, you know, a lack of acceptance, conditions being applied to, you know, whether when I give you something and it's not just given freely and with love, like there's. There's so much embedded in in that gesture that she made, that Ellen made, without you having any control over that. And right. I, yeah, I understand. Right, and and things were imbued with things were the, were important, and so everything that was given to me was laden with something. Right. So, 
So I'm just thrilled that Holly wants this and I can't wait to see what she does. Oh, that's so good. Yes. That just happened uh, yesterday or the day before. Yeah. So. Oh, I'm really happy for you about that. I'll tell you quickly, just tangentially, and it's the flip side of the coin. But my dad's sister, Madeline, was, I was very, very close to her. And I used to fly to Greece whenever she got sick and I would go and look after her. And when her husband got sick, I went and looked after him, even though he wasn't a very nice man. But out of love and respect for her, to support her, I would go and do that. And anyway, she died of cancer in 2000. You know, she talked to me about what she wanted me to have of her possessions and all that sort of stuff. So was, you know, she's very open and, and frank about everything. So I wasn't actually in Greece when she died and my brother and my cousin were there to pack up her possessions and distribute everything. And what arrived for me by ship some months later was a wooden trunk, which was a beautiful antique, which I definitely wanted. But inside it was a whole dinner set that I hated. No, there were no bowls, plates, flat plates of different sizes and a few platters, but they were gilt-edged, very like almost Rococo, just not my style at all. And I, I hated them and I hated the fact that this is what people, my, the people I loved had thought that I was supposed to get, but also there was cutlery with no spoons. So there was no bowls and no spoons and this enormous number of plates that I hated. And as it turned out, I ended up moving house um, many times and I kept having to pack this baggage up and it just infuriated me every time because I loved Auntie Mad, but Mm -hmm. To have this as the reminder of her was drove me crazy. Yeah. So at some stage, probably about five years ago, I just had it with the dishes and I, I put them on Facebook Marketplace and I got rid of them for, look, I, I, I don't even think I got $50 for them. Yeah, they don't, they, you, don't, you don't get any money for that stuff anymore. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. I felt so free (laughs) not have them anymore because it just instead of them me looking at them and thinking good and positive and loving memories of auntie mad all i got was just feeling misunderstood (laughs) and it had nothing to do with her it had just it was just a situational thing yeah it was such a good decision to yes get rid of them Yes. So I, I have a sense of what you're saying. Yeah. I've done that with other things that Ellen has given me. It's just like, even though they're nice, just I just pass them along. Yeah. Just pass them along. I don't someone want will that. love them more than you. Right. And they, yeah, the, because I think things do carry energy. If, you know, if I, I think about who, where that came from, who that came from, what, it, what trip that came from, or, you know. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, it's it's very freeing to. Uh... <laughs> so tell me, did, did you find that your, your enthusiasm for making was in any way impacted by the loss of Ellen? No, you know, my, 
my interest in this topic is so much bigger than um, than her death. I don't feel like I do a very good job of expressing my grief through my art. And I really admire other artists who who do that. Yeah. Um, and I can feel it's almost easier for me to feel grief and feelings sort of in that category when I look at other people's work. And especially when I read poetry, that's a very, I used to write a lot, but I'm yeah, not yeah. doing that now. Um, or when I look at, you know, a Rothko painting or, yeah. So that's interesting. You should say that because yeah. what I have, um, I've been talking to people and it's sort of come out as a theme where people might've thought had these preconceived ideas or liked things to be easily spelled out and linear people who are experiencing grief have an attraction and a tolerance for um, abstraction and abstracted art and a lot of people I've spoken to have said that they didn't like abstracts and they couldn't, they couldn't make sense of them, didn't have patience for it prior to experiencing this active grief. And then all of a sudden they have this attraction to it. I'm wondering what, what you think about that. That is so powerful. I, I, I love hearing that, actually. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. I've always liked sort of abstract art, dance, uh, visual poetry things don't have to make sense to me. Yeah, for me, you know, they don't have to. I just like them. They don't have to be explicit. Resonate. Yeah, yeah, right. But I, but that is I. That is really cool that that's a theme. Well, it um, is. It's I. I found it in myself. I didn't see the beauty and the lyricism and the the freedom that it allows you to experience when you need to actually give a little bit to the artwork whether it be you know a p poetry with words or or actually um with visuals but after dad died I realized that there was a and probably after my brother died a little bit too because I started making a bit more abstract art it was like a tolerance for the nebulousness and just uh, being able to sit in it that I, uh, I really appreciated. There was a huge shift for me because I was very literal before. Wow, that is so cool. And I used to only want to communicate with words. Like even my artwork was all about words and chopped up words mm -hmm. because I felt that it could be more easily understood, whereas I don't have this desperate need to be understood now. I've been doing a little bit, you know, some thinking and a little bit of writing in anticipation of this conversation. Yeah. In the, the evolution of my art, which I've been at for, you know, decades, just more seriously in the last 10, 15 years, say, I think that one of the things that I've noticed, and I don't know if it's, if it has any to anything to do with expressing grief, but just maybe me being more experienced and, and comfortable with it, 
my art making is that my designs have become simpler. Like I don't have to have a vine and a bird and, a, you know, these things that people would know my work by those, mm-hmm. by those things. But now it's like, oh, a circle with half of it scratched out, you know, that just that. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm thinking in my ceramics. Sure. Um, so I, I think there's something it's, it's nebulous, but I think just allowing myself to do that, trusting myself to do that. And that hopefully people will like it and buy it, but yeah. you know, but, but I, just that's been an evolution of mine mm. recently recently really mm. um sort of more gra- graphic still graphic but simpler simpler less detailed designs one thing that i really love in your work and and i'm wondering if it's been there from the start is your even though you have a mathematical background you you embrace this idea of balance without symmetry tree and I love that and I'm wondering where where does that come from in you that's a great question and I'm so um delighted to hear that you perceive that that you that you notice that I I don't know because I don't know where it comes from (laughs) I think it comes from looking at a lot just being observant and like if I'm taking a walk and I notice the way the sun is coming through the fence, you know, it's not, it's not perfect. There's, there's something a little off and that's what catches the eye. If, if I were, if I were only influenced by my math background, probably I would be really into perfect symmetry. Although, although I don't think math is really that way. I think maybe it's perceived you know, that way, but it's not really that way. It's actually very fluid and creative when you get, you know, when you get to a certain point. But yeah, there's something about, I don't know, it just really appeals to me. And I think also my work is informed by, I've been meditating since 1975. I do a lot of yoga. Yeah. And have studied with various um, spiritual teachers and what, so what took you in that direction well my brother got his physics degree at uh, undergraduate at um, Maharishi International University okay Mah- the father of transcendental meditation yeah yep. and so he got he, he was the first person in the family to start meditating and and then we followed. Right. So I would, yeah. So I've been, I've, I've been exploring that various realms for a really long time, and I think that that also, you know, everything informs everything, right? Well, what's the nature of your practice then? Daily, every morning. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you find it impacts? Like, what's the benefit for you of having that practice? I, I've been doing it for, you know for almost 40 47 years yeah so it's just like brushing my teeth almost <laughs> you know what i mean it's so habitual um, so what what made you want to, not what made you want to do yeah. it but what made you 
I'll tell you, hang on, I'll tell you why I'm interested. My yeah. father was a yogi. He started, started to study yoga was when he was 30, which is when I was born, he had a severely overactive thyroid to the point where he was taking medication and his eyes were protruding and nothing was working and he was told you have to have your thyroid removed. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I understand that why I am so full of this adrenaline is I'm full of hatred. He hated his father. He hated this country. It was so racist and he had such a hard time. He said, I'm full of hatred and I know that if I manage that, not suppress it, but if I learn to manage myself, I will be healed. So he went and he found a yoga teacher who had only recently arrived in Australia, whose name was Vijayadev Yogendra, and he, who came from the Yoga Institute in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Dad became one of the first students of this fellow. So that was in 1968. It took about nine years for him to have felt that he had overcome the the negative consequences of this rage that he felt for that to become embedded in his cells. But he was utterly changed by undertaking this, but it was also about having an understanding about himself and about life. And it was a whole philosophical shift and search for him rather than um, just doing a set of exercises, which a lot of people think yoga is. Yes. Well, I'm interested to know if you've been doing a practice for such a long period of time, what does it give to you that would encourage you to continue to do it rather than it just being a habitual like brushing your teeth. Right. You know, it's such a hard question for me to answer. I'm kind of embarrassed because (laughs) because I there's something that compels me to keep doing it. You know? I mean I've taken some, you know, I every once in a while I don't do it for whatever reason. Um but um you know I've I've experienced um, depression and anxiety my whole life, panic attacks. Um, So I think, um, I don't, you know, I have to think about that. Can I throw a suggestion to you? Sure. That it's possible that by doing the practice and giving yourself that time and energy you actually lower your baseline for the day before you start the day so if you don't do it you might be I don't want to say emotionally because it's not about emotion it's about the whole of what's happening in your body but um, you might be at like a level five out of ten but once you've done your practice you're like at a three out of ten and you can start the day there and you give yourself more breathing room and you have a relationship with your breath and you can um you can be more aware of who and how and what you're doing because you've actually given that to yourself at the beginning of the day yeah that makes a lot of sense actually yeah yeah Yeah. yoga practice is really good for me 
you know, I do that on top of the meditation. I do that about three times a week. I, it's moving meditation. Yeah. So it's meditation while moving, which mm. is really good for depression and anxiety. Um, yeah. I also uh, experience depression and anxiety. And so I understand how it physiologically affects you as well as emotionally. And I can, I can see how the benefits of undertaking a structured practice, whatever that is, helps manage that as well as I also have medication and stuff. But yeah. I felt like I, was, it, I wasn't being authentic when my dad was alive if I sort of compared myself to what, like he had this active search for a spiritual connection, which it's that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. Although when I'm engaged in my art practice and I'm just doing the thing, whatever it is that I'm doing, creating, that to me is very much a manifestation of a sort of meditative process. Yes. That's how I... And that was a benefit that I derived once I made the decision to make it be part of my daily experience. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's been very important to me, to me in my mindset. There was something um, that I wanted to touch on when you were talking about your father and having a hyperthyroid. Yeah. And refuse, you know, refusing to have his thyroid taken out and realizing that it was connected to his rage, de- dealing with it in a completely non-medical way. I've had, in the last year and a half, all this physical stuff coming up, vertigo, diverticulitis, all this stuff. And I've been going to all of these doctors and having all of these tests and nothing is um, with the vertigo. There's a, there's a diagnosis that's changed from the initial diagnosis. I recently saw a woman here who is, uh, she's an intuitive. She, she's, you know, psychic does Tarot does Reiki. um, And I went and saw her and just very recently because I wanted to get a different perspective possibly on what's going on here. And she said a lot of things to me, um, but she it's coming through her from, from my guides. Um, and she basically gave me this perspective that my body, I was, as a survival technique, I stayed very small my whole life, like physically small and energetically to stay safe because it wasn't safe to be big, to be really be myself, to be yourself, to be myself. And so what my body is saying enough of that, you know, like, it's just like that it's, it's, it, it's reacting it's doing its thing. <laughs> it's, it's well for every action. Yeah, yeah, for every action, there's an equal and opposite, opposite reaction. reaction. Exactly. Can't escape it. 
Yeah. And also if you try and suppress it and yes. embrace what's going on, you actually yes. create another whole layer. Exactly. Of- so yeah. so I'm sitting with that and I had another vertigo. I've had a few vertigo episodes in the last week, and um, I've tried to get in the middle of them because they're very uncomfortable and scary, actually. Um, and I try, I try to remember the possibility that of what she, you know, what she said to me that it's yeah. just my body. You know, it's like. I'm sick of being small, you know. Yeah. This is what happens when you're when you're suppressed. Yeah. Yeah, sure. My dad would say to you, he would say, when you are in the middle of an episode, you need to just become aware of your breath. Just bring it back to your breath. And you you would be very good at that. It's very hard when you feel like your body's falling apart, but ultimately the best way you can help yourself is to become aware of your breath, not to control your breath, not to do equal breathing, none of that. Just focus on your breath and everything will align. It will will happen. Physiologically, like my dad went through so much. He had a brain, he had this autoimmune disorder that uh-huh. they don't know a lot about, but it causes the body to create tumors that mimic cancer. So uh-huh. he had a massive brain tumor removed. He had caused a necrotic gallbladder that gave him sepsis twice before they found what it was. Like it's all of this stuff that he went through. But what made it possible for him to to recover and to really have grace and acceptance in his life, which he was just the most beautiful man, was his relationship with his breath. And that's what he'd be telling me to tell you, that just remember your breath because it connects you to the universe. Thank you. And it's really hard when things are frightening, but yeah, ultimately... You, if you can just focus on that, it'll it'll help you. Yeah. Mm. He had vertigo too. Did he? Oh. <laughs> well, with the brain tumor. Oh yeah, because they couldn't remove the whole tumor because wow. he would have ended up blind and deaf and unable to speak. So they had to leave a percentage of it behind. Wow. So in terms of this project, And the intersection of creativity and loss or adversity, do you see those things intersecting in your experience? I, I, the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that is I think that having a creative life has saved me from the loss and adversity I've experienced. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, that it's um, it, it, it's hard work. I mean, I'm not glamorizing it. There are plenty of times I feel I don't want to go in this studio, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, or I don't want to do this, or um, I get bored. But there's something about having all of that in my life, which has helped just save it has saved me yeah. it has helped me it sounds like it's really helped to ground you yeah it's like and for you it's foundational like in the same way that your yoga practice 
is foundational. It's like you've put these things in place to give yourself structure because, and and also might I suggest sort of permission Yeah. because if you felt that you needed to be really small, yeah. it actually gave you an opportunity to have a voice yeah. in a space that you've created and that you occupy. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is this is me. This is mine. This is my expression. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also your evolution because, as you said, you know, your work is becoming more minimal, but it allows there to be more consideration. You know, when there's all of this going on, it can be very distracting. When there's something that is paired back, it's much more revealing. Yes, yes. So everything needs to be or becomes more considered. Right. Oh, and I want to show you, I'll be right, my, all my work is right here. Yeah. I want to show you something. <laughs> um, so for a long time, so, you know, I, I just, I roll the clay out and I, would lay it in forms, other forms that I have. So I have a t bunch of forms in my studio. Yep. Tons, tons of, and here's an example of one, you know, it's, yep. yeah. And then recently I started just um, rolling out the clay at, in whatever shape and folding up the edge. I love that. Right. And so I get all these wonky shapes. I love them. Yeah. And I just started doing that recently. Just the, I'm so just, glad you do that. Yeah, it's so much more. It's much more characterful. And also yeah. the design inside is kind of informed by the wonky shape. Right. And I love it. I love it. Right. So so that's something new that I'm doing that I forgot about when, we, when I was talking about um, sort of being less... Anyway, just and it's an evolution, yeah. Oh, you know, well, we could say rather than having to square everything off and fit it into a mold, you're, it's like if you wanted to extrapolate into yeah. a life, it's 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 about going where you need to go and accepting that yeah. and making it into the thing that it needs to be rather than the thing that you expect it's going to be. Right, right. And that's kind of a much am I going to say this, it's a much more healthy way to be in the world anyway rather yeah. than trying to have all this control all the time. Right. Say, no, I'm actually just going to roll it out and see what happens yeah. and embrace that. Right, and then just fold up the edges and they're not, they're pinched and they're not perfect and, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, th this this time for me I'm trying, is, is I think a theme for me these days is is freedom and freedom from, you know, from Ellen, yeah, and freedom from constriction. And this is just another example of that. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the freedom from Ellen, mm -hmm. it's not just about the fact that she's died, because we continue to have a relationship with the people who have died. It's just a different sort of relationship, and right. it's only one voice. Although yes. there's the echoes. Yes. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You still have to have that relationship because it's part of who you are in the world. So having some sort of a reckoning with that 
particularly when the relationships you had with those people were really challenging, is is often much more difficult on a on a cellular level because it's not nothing's really simple about how you manage that and just pretending it's not there actually in the end amplifies everything right right yeah totally the um the memorial that we had for her was um the day before the jewish holiday of passover Mm -hmm. which is about freedom freedom from from slavery freedom from bondage yeah and the rabbi who this very progressive uh female rabbi who did the who did the service um or who wove into the service when she she left the reception she said to me uh liz remember that passover is about freedom (laughs) it it was interesting timing yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And tell me, did Ellen have a sense of her lack of motherliness or did she think of herself as something that you didn't experience? Um, I think she did have, a, she did have, she had enormous, she was very troubled. It was all about keeping up appearances, but underneath you scratch the surface, she was um, very, a very unhappy person. And I think on some level, you know, she knew that she wasn't a good Mm. mother to me, especially Mm. my brother had a different experience because he was, he's a little bit younger and he's the boy, not the girl. (laughs) So everything was, all the shit was projected onto me. Yeah. Um, And in the end she had, you know, she, she had dementia so she was a very complicated person. Yeah. And I had this incredible gift uh, after she died, um, uh, a peer of hers and the mother of, of a family that we were just really close to named Penny, who grew up a, grew up a block away from Ellen. And so they knew they've known each other since they were, you know, really tiny Penny actually called me, which she never does. And she she said, Liz, I just want you to know that I am so upset about how your mother treated you. And I never knew. It was so affirming. I never knew that anybody else knew that anybody else saw this. Yeah, yeah. And this is someone who had been a very close friend of hers. It was such a gift to me. I bet. And um, I had to tell her more than once what a gift it was because she actually felt kind of badly after she told me this. It's so interesting, isn't it? Like to actually just tell somebody what you say. It's one of the biggest gifts I've ever received in my life, actually. And some people have said to me, aren't you... Are you angry that she didn't tell you sooner? Said, no, she couldn't tell me when Ellen was alive. She she just couldn't. I respect that. You know, yeah. she it would have been too. It just 
she yeah. would have felt like she was betraying her or whatever, you know, whatever. Mm. But it was an incredible gift. Well, it's funny because um, I had a very complex relationship with my brother who I adored, um, but our relationship was complex and we never could reconcile. I didn't feel respected. I didn't feel seen. I didn't feel validated. And and when I would say that to him, he would say, well, you don't need other people to respect or validate you. You need to do that for yourself. And like, oh, it's so yeah. frustrating. But when I've spoken to his wife subsequent to his death, and actually we had a really good talk, I don't know, maybe three weeks ago, we were talking about how my brother was very buttoned up emotionally and he processed everything on the inside and then he liked to share fully formed, well-rounded views about things. And sometimes there was a fatal flaw in what his opinion was, but I don't want to say he was closed-minded because... I don't think he, it would be fair to say that, but in some ways he, he just thought that he knew better mm-hmm. and didn't respect my input or even sometimes his wife's input into into the truth or, or the wholeness of, of a matter. And it, and it was so lovely to have that conversation with oh. her. We can share what the truth of our experience and our frustrations and our pain was and and feel better with each other for that and and I hope that in his I mean I know in his next incarnation this will be something that he'll need to work out because it was it's not I don't know it was very real yeah 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 Yeah, in terms of his relationships with the women he was close to yeah yeah yeah, so I know exactly what you're saying and what a gift it is when you get that validation from somewhere where you least expect it as well. Wow. It, it's very moving. Really was, yeah. And you and to be able to talk about people who you have lost, I find that, like, if I talk about my brother's flaws, I'm not judging him. It's just... He was a person on this earth because he was meant to learn and evolve and grow. That's why he was here. If he was perfect, he w- his soul wouldn't be on that journey. But because if I talk about the things that were vexing, the difficulties we had, I don't mean to be bad-mouthing him or diminishing him or diminishing his memory. I just think that I'm humanising him and... Uh, I think I I grew up in an environment where I didn't feel like I was allowed to be flawed mm. because I didn't want to disappoint anybody. So just being able to be honest about what your experience was is, is crucial and I think that plays out in the imperfection in my artwork and not wanting the lines to be perfect and not yeah. I just want to be able to express Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That really resonates with me because, as I said, Ellen was all about appearances and the house was beautiful and everything had to be in its place and you had, you know, you had to dress perfectly. And so this imperfection 
is so freeing, right? Yeah. Right? So thank yeah. you for saying what you just said because that I really well resonate. it's life it, it's 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 actually the you that is yeah. in that piece and that's what makes it so beautiful and perfect in its own way you know the piece that you show me first which is made from the form doesn't have the character it has the hand yeah the design the 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 surface design is yeah yeah, the surface design yeah but it doesn't have the spirit yeah of those other pieces yeah which are just really really like you want to pick them up yeah, <laughs> have a piece of toast. Yeah, yeah, perfect for a piece of toast. It's yeah. perfect. It's just it is. It's just. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm so glad that you showed me those pieces oh. and the evolution of that because that shift away from those forms is really huge. Yeah, I don't. I, I'm not sure what made me do it. Anyway, because that was a was year just, ago. But it was just yeah. life made you do it. That's life. It. Life made me do it. I don't need to have a reason. <laughs> no. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you've gone in that direction. I think it's yeah. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you so much, Sophia. Yeah. And I'll, was, I'll talk again. Yeah, that would be wonderful. All I right. hope you feel better soon, too. We are I, I love that conversation with Liz. It was so lovely of her to be so generous and open about all the things we discussed. And I found it fascinating looking at the parallels that emerged between the effects of childhood trauma and how that can impact on a person later in life with um, health problems that come out. I really hope that me talking to her about what my dad's experience was can also validate and help her. But what I do want to say is what I was talking about when we spoke about the power of the breath, it is not meant in any way to suggest that when you have symptoms or when you are feeling that something is wrong, you don't seek medical attention. What I found with dad was that when he was experiencing physical trauma or discomfort or even emotional anguish when he could bring himself back to his breath it would give him relief and so that's the message it's a means of accessing relief rather than being a solution so I just wanted to make that quite clear so now all we need to do is some housework (laughs) the final bit the bit where you stack the dishwasher at the end of the party the first person I'd like to thank is Liz of course for joining me and sharing her time and her stories you're going to find information about how to find out more about her in the show notes but she's at Liz Gamberg on Instagram and her website is lizgamberg.com, which is all very intuitive. Uh, I'd like to say thank you for being on the show to Blue Ant, who have provided me with the StreamX microphones and the Zonex headset, which I use to record and mix these little episodes. Dallas Cosmos, my super talented cousin, thank you so much 
again for the use of Good Goodbye, a track from his 2016 LP called The Memory Keys. That's my intro and outro music and I love it. If you would like to support Where Art and Grief Meet as a project, you're going to find all the information about it that you could possibly want on my website, which is sofansun.com. There is a link in the show notes. And you can also search Patreon for Where Art and Grief Meet if you would like to become a patron, which I would so greatly appreciate. My daily art practice is documented on Instagram at sofcosmos underscore art. And you can find what I am creating there on a daily basis. And if you want to share feedback or if you want to talk about Where Art and Grief Meet to your friends, I would appreciate the ever-expanding Where Art and Grief Meet universe. So please know that I'm open to receive feedback. I love feedback. And please talk about it to anyone who you think might be interested. And thank you, dear listener, for once again joining me and helping me close out episode number five. So until next time, when we talk to the ebullient Margot Tanto from Windowsill Chats, it's good goodbye from me. Where Art and Grief Meet is a Soap and Sun production produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge their continuing contribution to Australian culture.